Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Director of IBM Digital Assets and CTO of Portal. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to Beyond Bitcoin. Today is a special edition. There's so much volatility in the market and so much discussion around Terra Luna, we thought we would address both of these things. And to do that, of course, we have our friend and colleague along, Nitin Gower. Good morning, good evening, Nitin. Hey, Derek, glad to be here. Um, I'll always say what an amazing week, but this was extraordinary. <laughs> a lot happened this week, which um, which is uh, you know a, a case study, but also a lot to learn from. So yeah, there's a lot to unpack. Chat. Yeah. And especially, of course, we have um, Mark Witten, who's the CIO of Portal Asset Management. He has 20 years of experience in running alternative funds, and he's been involved with this space for three years, running uh, what is really an institutional grade fund. And so we're keen to hear your perspectives. Welcome along, Mark. Thanks, Derek. Good to see you. So without further ado, I think the first thing we'll address is just this extraordinary volatility. Let's call it as it is, downward volatility to this marketplace mm -hmm. um, and, and see where the correlations are occurring and what's triggered this and what's sustaining it. Over to you, Mark. What are your thoughts? <clears throat> Thanks, Derek. So I think, it, you know, towards the end of last year, we were, as, as a house, as, an, as, an, as a fund manager, we were getting very concerned around the, the rates of change in inflation. Um, towards September, October, we put out a note going into the end of the year saying that inflation is being, you know, really grossly underestimated. You could see that um, with the, the, the shutting down of the Keystone pipeline in January, February last year, and America losing its energy sort of independence, um, you could see the, the inflationary pressures that were going to be coming through, particularly from an energy perspective, because it's, you know, it, it, everything that we consume is either delivered on a truck or a, or a boat or, you know, a train, et cetera. Everything needs energy to be moved around. And obviously the, the inputs into that system, particularly food and manufacturing, require vast amounts of energy. So we were concerned around energy and we, we you know, we did increase our defensiveness as a fund. We did uh, think that you know, the Fed was gonna have to be forced to hike a lot more aggressively. But what you know, the markets have been used to for the past few years is a, is a world of very cheap and, and, and easy money. You know, the, the price of money being interest rates was negative. In other words, you were almost paying the government to hold your cash for you instead of the other way around. And you know, when the US Federal Reserve embarks on a, on a hiking cycle, you know, all these risk asset markets that have been enjoying this boost of cheap money begin to, to show signs of, you know, signs of distress because A, liquidity is going to be withdrawn. So people tend to want to batten down the hatches and ensure that they have, um, you know, enough provisions set aside. But at the same time, um, you know, future cash flows generated by, in, in this case, equities, let's say, get discounted at higher rates and that, that reduces the, you know, the current present value that you'd be expected to pay. What you're also seeing is... Um, the recovery that we saw between 2020, 21 through the unlimited QE, this massive amount of printing of capital, there was also this, um, you know, shutting down of Main Street during the pandemic and the 
elevation, should we say, of, of Silicon Valley and, and online um, consumption of digital data and digital content. So you saw the likes of Facebook or Meta, you know, Amazon, Google, et cetera, you know, their revenues were boosted. And at the same time, their forward multiples, their expectations of growth were, were really stretched. And they called it a K-shaped recovery where it was, you know, tech running and pulling the market up as the heavyweights and everything else was kind of either being dragged along or, or went nowhere. And that's that momentum trade, I think, is unwinding as well, partially because of interest rates, partially because of, um, you know, a, a pullback in growth expectations. But also, I think there's there's a bit of a backlash going on at the moment. And, you know, Web3 is, is driving that, you know, that's the tip of the spear. There's this backlash against some of the incumbents um, and big tech and, and media platforms, which, you know, I think people people might feel that they're not representing their best interests. That, that tends to be the, the general consensus out there. So I think those three things, you know, have, have altered risk appetites and altered perception of risk in the market. And then, you know, moving it across into the, um, into the crypto space, you know, the equity markets have a forced buyer. In other words, there's monthly contributions from insurance companies and pensions and so on. And every month they continue to have a targeted asset allocation. And, you know, they, they generally are very broad investors. I mean, the market falls, they're still receiving cash in every month and they'll continue to buy. Whereas in the crypto space, there is no forced buying. It's not regulated. So it tends to be more driven in, in some instances by speculation and some are bigger investors. Um, the correlation between big tech, NASDAQ, represented by the NASDAQ, which is down, you know, 30%, give or take, from its highs in, in, in October, November last year. And some of the big, um, you know, some of the big tech counters, I mean, Metaverse down 50, Amazon's down over 30. And these are really, you know, these are big heavyweight companies, I mean, some of the biggest, if not the biggest in the world, along with, with Apple. Um, the correlation has probably spiked to, to close to 80%. Um, but I think the liquidity factor is what's driven crypto and, and, and been more of a um, more of a detriment than anything else. There's also not a lot of price discovery there. And I think you just to, you know, finish off when, in, in terms of the way I see the markets is that, I, you know, I was really nervous towards the end of last year and going into the beginning of this year. Looking at what I'm seeing at the moment now, I think the world is starting to adapt. Um, I think inflation, which was expected at eight and a half last month, came in at 8.3. So I think we've seen the peak in inflation, but I don't think it's going to come down as rapidly as we would like. It is an easy fix. You know, it'd be very easy to fix the supply chains, um, but unfortunately, you have very severe lockdowns in places like Shanghai. Um, you know, you, you you've got a very stringent um, energy policy that's globally that's also being exacerbated by what's going on in in the Ukraine, and all these geopolitical risk factors are you know feeding into growth expectations. But I do think that the Fed is going to be forced to recant towards the end of the year you know they, the us is going into a recession there's, that's just there's no two ways about it um and once you see two quarters of extremely negative growth i think that there will be not only change in terms of maybe hard deals with energy but also change in terms of its policy although you know that that, that remains to be seen the, the only thing i'd add to this um is just looking at the crypto space you know and nitin can can shed more light on this is that you know, people have always been very aware that it's a highly volatile space. It's not regulated. You know, it is, uh, you know, there's a lot of opportunity, but there's also a lot of risk. And I think, you know, with what happened with, with the attack on, on Luna um, and the stablecoin, I think it's important to address concerns around what could be seen as systematic risk in the space. 
um, in terms of it spreading to other stable coins and creating this contagion. I personally, having done quite a bit of reading over this over the weekend, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think this was a very specific example, but I wouldn't want to be, um, you know, calling calling it just yet. So I think maybe Nitin, you can you can shed some lights on that. So, yeah, so no, just thanks. Just just before right. we jump across to, to Nitin, I just wanted to to um, just ask a couple more questions around yeah. um, around what's happening in this economic space. Because Nitin, I want that deep dive. We're really keen to hear exactly why um, Tether uh, broke away and collapsed like that. Um, but on the other hand, you know, a lot of people that have invested in this space feel that they're sort of rebels and and they've invested in this space because this space isn't the rest of the world. Yet currently, the correlations are very high to the market. So the rest of the economic or traditional finance world is having a very substantial impact on, on the crypto asset space. Mark, um, how long do you think that's going to go for? Are there signs that that's going to break away? Um, and, and how do you see that? So I think in times of, of stress, um, you know, when there's a reset of, of risk attitudes across all asset classes, it filters into, into pretty much everything, particularly, you know, assets with high volatility that are seen as real risk potentially um, in, in the crypto space. But I think, you know, we've spoken about this before where we say, well, yes, you know, the layer ones are cryptocurrencies, but DeFi and smart contracts and so on are not like traditional cryptocurrencies. They're actually more like, when I say securities, they're representing business opportunities. They're representing business models that are generating a lot of free cash. And, you know, that's what people need to focus on. The fact that Ethereum generated $10 billion in revenue last year and will probably do at least 50% to 100% growth on that this year um, as you move from, from proof of work to proof of stake. So I think personally, if I look across the, the, you know, the various asset classes, where would you place your bets? Where would you want to put capital to work? like fixed income is is a no-go with you know inflation and the continued interest rate expectations or hikes real estate is really it's it's illiquid and it's also rallied a lot um over the past two years driven by that sort of cheap funding and you know i, I don't think that's somewhere to put capital you know either and i think you can see what's happened in the in the, the equity space so it leaves you with alternatives and i think you know you look at private equity hedge funds you know precious metals and in our case crypto I think it does represent a very much a very well-priced risk-adjusted bet. But I also think that when you're looking for growth in a world of, of declining margins, you know, where you've seen um, this compression of margins across everything from, you know, whether it was supply chain to wages, where are you getting real growth? Like what, what's, what do you expect Netflix or, or Meta or Google's growth to be this year from a revenue perspective? Like it's, it's not growing at 30 or 40%. It's just not. So, you know, to pay 25, 30, 50 forward multiples is just mm. insane in a world where you can find real growth in the crypto space. And I think the other side of it, there's, there's the pull factor, which is the growth and the fact that it's, it's an area that's got a lot of, um, a lot of you know, nascent potential and opportunities that are starting to present themselves. But there's also the push factor where we've seen this continued debasement of currency. You know, like every other every other time it's happened in history, whenever you just print excessive amounts of cash, you know the U.S. being different in that it generally could export a lot of its inflation, but now it's catching up with them. I mean, they've they've grown their their M two M two's money supply has grown by over I think it's over fifty percent, fifty percent in the last two years, which is like more than it's grown over the past hundred years, and that's just mm -hmm. like it's gone exponential. And what does that mean? Well, 
either, you know, either goods and services have to catch up, which is what's happening with inflation, or, you know, as you see, the, the, the dollar needs to be debased. And that's what's happening. I think that's what's, you know, big part of what's going on in terms of this, the shift in geopolitics. Um, I think, you know, the, the final thing I'd say on that is when you're looking for growth, yes, there's growth in the crypto space, but also when you're looking at how you could protect your wealth, a lot of institutions, family offices and so on are not looking to create massive return. They're just looking to preserve their wealth. They're looking to protect their capital and create, you know, intergenerational wealth because they've still got, you know, decent cash flow coming in. And, you know, I, I'd be hard pressed to say that I would trust putting my money in the bank or putting it into anything that's, you know, anything that potentially is, is centralized. I think the world has changed its attitude towards that. You've seen a lot of, you know, government and bank overreach over the past few months. And that has also been a bit of a push factor. And as much as, you know, the, the, this conflict in the Ukraine is, is, is a real tragedy, you know, there's certain things that it's just, it's quite strange to see how all of a sudden globally within a couple of weeks in complete lockstep, every Russian asset and every Russian bank account was seized. And that's just, you know, that's, that, that shouldn't be the way to deal with this sort of situation. But now if you're someone sitting in another country that maybe is, you know, also, let's say, not as democratic or as liberal, like, how do you protect your cash? Because sitting, you know, putting it into a, um, into a bank account in the UK or having assets or having a, a fund in Switzerland, like, it's not safe anymore. So you've got to start exploring alternatives. I think people have been pushed into the space as well, and that's what will cause the decoupling along with the growth prospects of it. So then another area that's important, and that is that, um, you know, the, the correlation, the, the, the understanding that there's not a lot of price see through, the fact that, that there's not consistent money coming into the space through superannuation on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Um, you know, we, we see why we're seeing this space very volatile. But Mark, um, firstly, in two parts, as a fund manager, because you have run a fund which is designed to reduce volatility, or you're running it now, um, and, and secondly, as investors that are listening, how do you protect against this kind of massive downside volatility that we've seen over the last um, six to 12 months in this space? I think, so, uh, so the risk management question, it, you know, it depends on your, your risk personality or risk profile, but what I've seen, some of the funds that we, we look at, some of the funds, in fact, that we invest in, one of the things that they've, um, you know, which I've you know, had conversations with them about and funds that we've looked at and decided not to invest in. Um, the main reasons were not that they were running gearing, but the main reasons was their, their position sizing, their pin risk. You know, they came across what they perceived as a good opportunity and instead of allocating five or 6%, they'd have 30% of their fund in it. So we know funds that have had 30 to 40% of their, um, of their capital exposed to Luna, whether it's via the staking or, you know, by the tether. And it's, that, that's caused this, some of these funds to have drawdowns of 40, 50, 60%, which is, it's not acceptable even in a space like this, which is very volatile. So I think number one, you know, you need to be prudent. We've always been very prudent in our approach. We maintain small position sizes on the more volatile funds. We have an anchor. You know, I believe you should always anchor your portfolio with stuff that might be a bit, you know, call it boring and stable and so on. But you, at least you, you know that there's a solid core in the portfolio that should you know, weather the storms and, and will actually give you protection when you need it. And then, yes, you, know, you add a bit, of, you know, a bit more excitement and a bit more spice and looking for other opportunities, but you do it prudently in size. You, know, you make sure that you know, you're, you're managing that risk, that pin risk. 
I think the first thing is, you know, as a fund manager, you need to be, fund management's about looking out 12 to 18 months. It's not about what's happening now. What's happening now is almost, when I say it's irrelevant, it's like it's happened. It's what's coming next. So you're always trying to sort of predict where the momentum and where the growth is going. Markets are a forward predictor. They look out 12 to 18 months. So you got to say, well, where's the world now versus where's it going to be in 12 to 18 months? You know, in terms of monetary policy and so on, you can't really call geopolitics, particularly in, in the environment we've been in the last few years. But what you can call, in, in my opinion, and I think the, the investment committee shares this opinion, is you can sort of take a look at where VC funding, private equity investment, that sort of thing has been, you know, how much has grown in the space from almost nothing to 30 billion last year and already 12 and a bit the first quarter of this year and say, well, where do you see this space in the next 12 to 18 months? Do you see this space shrinking and less product coming to market and less investors? Or do you see more wallets, more, more liquidity, more capital coming into the space and a lot more product? And, you know, without even having to go and look at the data in terms of how many new wallets have been created and so on, you just take a look at the, the general headlines and you realize, you know, Bridgewater's entering the space, Braven Howard, um, you know, 0.72. Like, these are really big, proper hedge funds that manage sovereign wealth they manage probably 100 billion in funds directly under management and advise on probably you know, 500 billion on top of that easily. So if they're coming into the space and providing that sort of credibility, they wouldn't be doing this as a knee-jerk reaction. They, they don't need to come into the space. They don't need to raise any further assets. So that it's very much a planned and, and you know, stable, uh, when I say competitor, but stable entrance looking to enter the space. I'm concerned about some of the more... Um, uh, what's the right word? You know, you, you get some hedge funds out there that would have profited or would have done, you know, what happened with Luna and Terra. They would have done that to make a billion that destroy 30. You know, you have that sort of Soros mentality, which, you know, really gave the hedge fund space a really bad name in the, you know, at the turn of the century and, and in, into 2008. Um, and, you know, we hope that you're always going to have bad actors. You're always going to have these opportunistic players that come in and, and, will take advantage of any gaps they see in the system. But what we're hoping as well is the likes of the Bridgewaters and so on, they're investors for the longer term. They, they look for value. Um, you know, they look for ways of, of deploying capital where it's going to get greatest return rather than, you know, scalping. So, yeah, yeah I think, I think that's, that, that's to me where I see the market in 18 months. I see it decoupling not because of one specific thing, but a whole confluence of factors coming together, money, um, investment talent, you're seeing a lot of talent leaving big institutions, a lot more product coming in. You know, it, it's not something that's still be trying to be adopted or accepted. Like we know that the global accounting system is being replaced and yes. blockchain is going to be what replaces it. And how we benefit from that is, well, the products that will be built on top of that. Yeah. So, so let me ask you a question on this, uh, Mark, and this is something which is, you know, as we have analyzed this for quite some time, you know, looking into stablecoin, why do they exist? They exist because it allows for crypto natives and non-natives to get in and out of dollar easily and provide a fungible entity, which is understood. You know, we use USD and many of the fiats as fungible entity to be able to provide a medium, a medium of exchange to various asset classes. And that's exactly what stablecoins did is to say, we cannot rely on the existing delayed banking systems to be able to process payments. Let's tokenize something that people understand and it allows for people to be able to bring liquidity. And what that did is this, you know, pegging a tokenized fiat, if I can use the term, to a 
USD, for instance. What it did was it allowed people to be able to bring liquidity from the traditional financial ecosystem into uh, the crypto ecosystem, and it provided fungibility, provided medium of exchange, which in many cases, the native layer one protocols of the world, which is the Bitcoin and Ethers of the world, also provide for pure native elements. And we've always looked into this, both in terms of numbers, as we analyze this thing, is that the stable coins is a super interesting area. In fact, the highest amount of transaction in the crypto industry actually happens with stable coins in context of stable coins used mm. as a medium of exchange for other asset classes. Mm. So I think that besides the Terra fiasco that we've seen, and that may have had an impact between 40 to 68 billion, depending on who you talk to, and if you were to amalgamate the three different tokens, which we'll dissect in a few minutes. Uh, you know, I think this is, you know, a... a a sum total and cumulative effect of what's happening in global macro and affecting the crypto macro. And I do, I do you know, distinguish between the global macro, which is the impact of interest rates, money supply, inflation, and all the things that we're seeing in the, in, in the, in the global macro context to the crypto macro where the liquidity begins to now leave. And many of the projects like, for example, the fiasco that we have seen with Luna make it worse when liquidity ends up leaving the ecosystem, making you know having a downward spiral towards valuation of all assets, because suddenly now you begin to see two or three projects failing, which sort of has the investor sentiments moving in the opposite direction. Isn't that the case? Then you know, yes, Luna made it worse, but I think we were heading in that direction anyway of liquidity leaving crypto assets. So I mean, you're very right in that nothing exists in a in a vacuum. Um, you know, everything is interrelated in this world, everything, you know, from supply chains to weather to responses to the pandemic, you, you know, you can't find one single thing. It's, it's lots of these threads that, that have been pulled over the past, call it two to three years. Um, and I agree with you um, 100% that there was going to be a, a liquidity shock, definitely. Um, but I also think we have been seeing, um, you know, it, be it anecdotally by speaking to the various funds. I mean, we get sent new funds almost on a, a daily basis. Um, we have been seeing a lot more interest and investor interest in the space. And it's, it's not just from investors privately, it's the likes of, let's say, AMP as a bank, the likes of the big hedge funds we spoke about earlier, that there is liquidity, there is the sort of wall of money looking to enter the space. The one thing I'd say that is very positive about what's happened with with uh, with Luna and Terra is is that it's going to force. Um, I think it's going to force regulators to look at the space properly. I think that regulation is coming, but I don't I don't think regulation is a bad thing. I think regulation is a good thing in that it creates the rules that we need to enable that facility, you know the transfer of capital from some of these bigger asset or more stable or or, or um, deeper liquidity asset classes into the space. I think, you know, the, the people that would be looking for liquidity, some of the, let's say, whether it's family offices or, or, or insurance companies, pension funds, hedge funds, I don't think they would have had massive allocations to the space. It's not like, you know, it's, it's not like Brevin Howard's got a 10% position in crypto. They wouldn't even have a 0.1%. It's a rounding error. So they wouldn't be looking to hit the bid just to, just to retrieve some liquidity. I think in this instance over here, there's definitely been a concerted attack on this it was orchestrated it was put out on social media 
you know, the people who did it, who knows who they are, whether they're caught or not, they can't ever really be held accountable because the space is not regulated. And I think that's a big wake up call for some of the other players in the space to realize you're not operating in a vacuum. There is large amounts of sharp capital out there that'll that'll scalp you if you if you don't have proper systems in place. Why don't they yeah, and, yeah. yeah, and, and I think the notion of attack, we should we should I think now jump into what actually happened yes. for folks to understand. My, my question, I, I think, yes. listen, my, my question to you would be simply, I mean, I want to understand the protocol. We, we can talk to that, but why was there no procedures in place? Why did um, the one, you know, not have procedures? Why didn't they have a circuit breaker? Like when equity market yeah. futures fall, why was there nothing yeah. to say? Wait, wait, let's roll this back. That, yeah, that's a great question. So let's let's go into mm. a little bit more the meat of this, right? So broadly speaking, uh, Mark, to answer your question, there are three types in classification of how stable coins issuance redemption models work. One is value on chain, which is what Bitcoin Ether do is they have the value in the chain. There's complete transparency in terms of how liquidity moves and how do you use them as stable instruments. Second thing is what is the most common, which is centralized IOU. So, you know, projects like, for example, um, USDC and USDT, for example, they are collateralizing by reserves and they actually have reserves in a bank, which says there's one to one peg. And you're using this for purely transaction and settlement purposes, which means using this instrument to exchange as a medium of exchange and ability to settle things, providing fungibility and liquidity from the traditional finance into the crypto space, which is uh, which doesn't necessarily have one single fungible instrument. And people, you know, for the folks who are non-crypto natives, they understand USD, they understand fiat, uh, that makes the understanding simpler that they're buying a digital asset with their dollars they have in a bank. And the last model, which is the model of interest to me and to all of us in this context, is what we call a synergy model. Synergy is a term that's used in central banking circles that basically defines that the cost of printing this creation distribution of money in, rel in relative cost to the real value of a dollar. So for example, if the dollar ends up costing us 45 cents to produce distribute, and you know, the, the synergy value becomes to be 45 or, or 55 cents in that, in that case. Now, these three models are very well understood in the industry. Uh, how each of the stablecoin derived value are fundamentally around two types. One is reserve back, which we talked about. When you have a US dollar, you keep the USD in a, in a third you know, third party where you may have a counterparty risk, but the regulation to protect you to say, here's, which is what USDC has been talking about this for the longest time. Uh, and Jeremy Allaire had a field day with, with all this stuff in, in, in many sort of uh, social media and many of the podcasts where they say that, look, we are providing audit functions. We are saying that this is all, they simply tokenize fiat for, improving market structure, which is market infrastructure for moving money, but at the same time, providing transparency and providing transactional efficiency of moving money. Second thing is collateral backed. So combination of synergy backed and synergy based model, which is algorithmic way to control money supply and collateral backed is where UST came into existence. So let's now dive a bit, you know, having defined what stablecoin exists, what they are, UST and, and the reason why these the algorithmic stable coins and I think we've had again in several podcasts talked about this and I for one um, have begun to look into this from a perspective of besides the UST fiasco in a positive note because I've always said this that if stable coins enter the space who are reserved back they bring the infectious global macro elements and so suddenly now which used to be an uncorrelated asset class becomes correlated because now we have dependency between uh, the the institutions that 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 control and have to have 
have centralized entity, you know, element of control on 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 fiat, and that becomes a challenge because now suddenly you're bringing that same thing as liquidity instrument into into crypto asset classes, and so <clears throat> the reason why algorithmic stablecoin exists because the idea there is that if I can create a model that does not rely on stablecoin, that does not rely on, and this should answer your question, uh, Mark, mm-hmm. does not rely upon banking systems then we are sort of not in the purview of the regulator. So of course, in many countries you have OCC, like for example, in the US that looks, that looks into the risk and, and the stress factors of the banks. You have FinCEN that looks into uh, the transactional framework. You have SEC, you have all the regulatory framework that looks into the movement of money in general. And uh, by having an algorithmic stablecoin that depends on two or three other different tokens, the whole idea is can we create a model that allows us to be able to not touch the banking system, ergo, not be confined or subjected to the regulatory forces that are trying to govern and control this piece. Now, that's where the art and science comes into play. That USD, if you were to dissect this, uh, is an algorithmic bath stable coin native to Terra's ecosystem. So Terra is a, is a blockchain ecosystem. It had, it had a native token called Luna. And UST was meant to be decentralized, which is questionable because it is nothing close to be decentralized algorithmic stablecoin, which attempts to maintain the peg stability. So price stability is the hallmark of any stablecoin, which is ironic because none of the crypto, um, whether we collateralize it or whether we peg to some element, the crypto itself is not stable. So how do you achieve price stability? And that becomes a mathematical problem at some point. But the dollar peg stability through a mint and burn mechanism where minting one UST, for example, requires burning the core asset of the Terra blockchain ecosystem, which is Luna and vice versa. So you you had some element to say, I'm creating this new instrument that if I'm creating this, I'm removing some money supply from already existing and functioning ecosystem and creating a dollar worth of UST and that way maintain a balance that people can. But the main thing is when you're creating an overlay asset, which is what UST is, then it has to have function. It has to have utility. Otherwise, what good does it do? This is where things became super, super interesting, where that stability was achieved through a mint and burn mechanism. And suddenly now people begin to look into this USD. So when you mentioned the word attack, for instance, the question to me was, was this was not an attack. This basically was an ill-conceived token economic model, bad governance, and a group think that set into community uh, you know, on the capability of few individuals that it, eventually the, the Luna community had to approve a few things. They agreed upon these whole elements. And so it was just a bad management. And yes, people took advantage of that bad management where you know you had people burn this and they basically moved into taking USD and liquidating for other assets. And, and that led to a downward spiral. But I'll pause here for a minute and I would like to you know look into characterization of this as an attack. I think this was just the human greed factor that you gave an avenue and people understood the system and wanted to exploit it. And that led to a downward spiral. And to fix this, the uh, the the establishment, which in this case was Dequan and and his sort of uh, you know core management team, begin to do interesting things. They begin to buy stablecoin, as you know, Bitcoin, to provide a, a secondary collateral you know mechanism to bail out. And then they also had Anchor protocol, which was a DeFi protocol on Terra network, whose purpose was to again provide the financial primitives, the borrowing, the lending. Uh, so they had all these complicated sort of downstream functions because they were trying to find utility for 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 Terra. And what's interesting is all all this led to them issuing more and more 
we see this in, in, in modern economies too. We see, you know, the 725 million tokens of Luna, which was priced at 64 plus USD before the crisis or this Luna crisis. Suddenly mm. now they had to pump in 7 trillion, which is again, hyperinflationary, uh, you know, uh, vehicles that we begin to see. And, and suddenly what used to be $64 is now about a cent. Uh, and so was, this is, again, you could have tokenized everything else. You can have amazing algorithms, but the fundamental principles of demand and supply economic systems remain the same. I'll, I'll pause here to get your perspective to see if that made sense. I'm happy to dive deeper into any of these areas. You know, it, it, it makes sense. I just, you know, one of the things I'm trying to wrap my head around is um, there seems to have been some rumblings um, over the past few months yes. around the stability and the integrity of the, the protocols. Um, and yet some of the more experienced investors and what we would call, um, you know, fund managers in the space were still, um, you know, using using the protocol and, and, and using it from a lending and staking perspective. And, um, you know, that's a lot less liquid. So it's not like you can just move the capital very quickly. And that seems to have been another, another driver of, of what happened. Um, as you say, that, you know, that reflexivity, that, that spiral that we saw, you know, I, I understand that um, they had a system and they had some of these as you say, downstream complicated protocols and systems in place. But what about, you know, some of the more simple, easy to easy to operate, yep. you know, circuit breakers that could have just taken the yep. almost the emotion and, and let the, the energy. Just, I mean, equity markets close every day and they close on the weekends. And as such, it gives people time to digest things. And you see movement in after hour prices. But there's, you know, the run on the run on this asset was just spectacular, and and maybe it was just human behavior, but it seems that the you know the rumors are that there was a lot of um, a big block borrowed and shorted, um, and there were a lot of players that were short in the space, short Luna that you know increased the selling pressure on the way down. Um, but so remember this, right? That that in all of this ecosystem, let's see which asset lost its value. So uh, the Anchor Protocol lost some of its value through that ecosystem. Luna lost its value. Terra definitely lost its value. Bitcoin lost its value because it provided downward pressure because Luna decided to use Bitcoin as a secondary collateral to surface the value. Uh, USD was not any of these, was not affected directly. So what I'm trying to tell here is that if you look at the entire stablecoin ecosystem, it's about $160 billion worth of stablecoins. And the properly functioning stablecoin that actually have by association regulatory oversight and compliance pressures on some of these, like for example, UST and USDC, uh, well-managed, um, well-governed, not exactly. And then you also have the, some of the examples of, of algorithmic stablecoins. If you look at MakerDAO, for example, that's an example of over-collateralized model where they have checks and balances. They have a stops where you over-collateralized your, you over-collateralize your, your crypto. So let's say you want to borrow a dollar, you, you, you put a $1.5 worth of Ether to borrow a dollar. And the moment Ether loses its value and reaches the, it, it, it triggers a, a liquidation uh, event. So at that point, you have checks and balances in the design of the protocol itself, which will never, so DAI has never gone through that challenge uh, with the exception of demand and supply and nothing this, this drastic only because they have that in place to say, if your collateralized asset goes below the peg, then it triggers a liquidation event, which means that if I'm 
collateralizing my asset and it goes below a dollar then or goes up to a dollar then i basically uh, the the protocol sells the asset to maintain the peg uh, that's been a valid model from that perspective mm-hmm. so i think it's to me it's governance and token economics system and i just think that there was um, there was a lot of faith in a few individual institutions which is always a challenge in this case mm. uh, and yes there's also all, all kinds of conspiracy theories in terms of people shorting bitcoin and buying more bitcoin or shorting usds but that's because the protocol enables it for people to be able to translate that into different asset classes do you, uh, and do you move those the money do you think, do you think this could do you think there could be some more contagion do you think there could be some some spread into some of the other you know stable <clears throat> coins or lending protocols so i i, I certainly think every dex every automated market makers every lending platform because of this should be scrutinized not only because of the fact that suddenly now for example there was a uh, there was a, a, a amm uh, that i was looking at earlier they had hard coded the value of usd hard coding meaning somebody actually had you know instead of looking into the true valuation of the token they hard coded the value of usd to the systemic stablecoin that that platform was offering so i think this will have a trickle down effect but i'm a positive guy in the sense that i'm looking at this to say the more people screw up the more protocols screw up there'll be further scrutiny in future which means that suddenly now you have processes in place same thing with the regulation i mean i think terra was mentioned in congress janet yellen talked about terra she did uh, had a broad and then the wall street journal reported about what terra so i think it's coming to mainstream which to me is nothing but awareness and i think that as to your point mark the regulators now who will who will provide some level of framework and this this will lead to a sense of urgency which was always in the back burner so from mm. that perspective i think it's good i also think it's a case study uh, mm. we've seen uh, fraudulent behavior in the past this is while not being a fraudulent behavior this is just a bad protocol bad design bad governance the question then becomes just like what we have done with listing of protocols and exchanges going through a certain due diligence of looking into security vulnerabilities of what used to be hacks back in the day which has now moved to bridges not to not to the not to the dows or not to the uh, smart contracts uh, the 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 fraud has moved to bridges bridges provide the change mechanism i think that this is this is all uh, i'm rather more forgiving uh, in this case to say we should learn from this and make sure the next stable coin that comes across has all the checks and balances that you talk about that i think is necessary for them to function properly in a again a stable economy a stable economic system that blockchain and decentralized ecosystems are aspiring to get to i think yeah yeah i think you know it, it has highlighted some a some some potential um miscalculations in terms of of capital adequacy um it's also maybe highlighted that you know he was happy to dokon was talking about high yet i think it was 3 and 1/2 or 4 billion in 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 bitcoin if i'm not mistaken um which is also probably not you know the wisest thing to do you know to to show your hand um i don't know where the regulations going there's there's a lot uh, there's a lot of unanswered questions and i'm not sure that the regulators themselves and really understand the technology i think they're still quite far behind the curve um it is good you know like like with children it's good when they get sick when they're young right they get rid of all those nasty diseases out of the way when they when they're still when they're still small it's kind of like this in this industry you know you need to get you need to get the mumps and measles and all those things i i do think though that um, from a credibility point of view um you know oh, yeah. it it's kind of raising some questions as to how people actually go about evaluating the risk because 
you know, from, and, and this was just from my understanding was that, you know, these were, you know, as you say, one for one, they were almost backed. It was a stable coin. There wasn't any systemic risk. So I think that's going to be something that, that, that needs to be taken into account. I don't think though, that it's going to cause, you know, as, as Derek mentioned a bit earlier, I don't think it's going to cause less liquidity in the space. I think, you know, there's going to be winners and losers, but I think if anything, what, what we expect is as the regulations come through, um, and the protocols are improved and the lessons are learned and, and maybe, you know, some simple, simple sort of circuit breakers are put in place that, you know, will dampen the volatility a little bit and, and not, not allow pure run on banks to happen. Then, yeah. you know, you will see, you will see, you know, better, a, a better pedigree of investing in the space. Yeah. But, you know, like to me, they're missing some of the, ignoring some of the fundamental tenets of decentralized systems. I, I think that was completely ignored when you had a few individuals who are printing money like we, what we have seen again in, in, in you know with the U.S. government and, and and the Federal Reserve System. So in theory, what mechanism they devised here allows for arbitrage opportunities to incentivize market participants to maintain the dollar peg, right? So you want to buy and sell, you and you had twenty percent again, which to me was also appalling. Where you had a risk-free yield of twenty percent, which to me is uh, one unsustainable. That suddenly mm-hmm. what people were doing was converting the Luna. So while the demand of USD increased because UST was giving 20% yield on Anchor Protocol, more Luna was burned. And Luna actually was a real asset, which was used in the system for its transaction purposes. So yeah. it was burned and Luna prices rise. But the reflexivity of the system, I think meant that when the demand of UST falls, then it's redeemed to new, new Luna. And, and, and the system then said, you know, with the, with the pressure of Luna increasing, resulting in downward spiral on Luna supply. And they had to then st- have the stop gap measure that went and bought Bitcoin to do that, which further had a spiral on Bitcoin because they had to sell Bitcoin as a stop gap measure. So you can see as to how all the three tokens were caught up in this in this yes. whole element. But still, uh, given the fact that at some point crypto was 2.3 trillion and this is a 60 significant hit uh, to that, mm. I think a lot of lessons to be learned in terms of token mm. design and token economic systems, which again, as a part of a risk process, Mark, I, I think, you know, when we look at our risk, which is what I think Derek had asked earlier, as a part of our operational research that we look into this is that anything that's completely new, which doesn't have the longevity and the track record mm. and has some of the systemic risk uh, should not make into protocol, into, you know, into some of the other elements as we look into building this long, uh, you know, long-term perspective on the industry per se. So to us, it's a risk element of looking at token economic system and, and not just the, the big names in the industry. We all looking to say, you know, you cannot collateralize your asset on a volatile asset because everything is fine when things go up. But yeah. when Bitcoin were to go down, that would actually create, a, again, the same. So we anticipated this. We didn't think this would take this long. So I'll stop here. <laughs> so could I add uh, also, I mean, the, the fact that you know, we, we constantly say this to a point where it gets cliched, and that is um, the code is the law. Excellent. But if the code's wrong, the law goes wrong, and the outcome is bad. And that's what we've seen with Terra Luna. The code wasn't effective, um, and it couldn't take a run, um, and it was flawed. Um, however, it is one of 16,000 tokens, and it was, I can, sort of in the top five or six tokens, and now is token number 23. Um, it is in, in essence um, our Titanic. And, and that is that it's a ship that sunk and many lives were lost. Uh, but from the Titanic came an entire set of new safety protocols. 
that now all the ships of the world run to. Now, the Titanic was one ship that sank at the time. There were still thousands of ships operating in the, in the 19, you know, 19, what is it, 18, 19 that it, it, it sunk. And so it's an example of a lesson that we've got to learn from. And, uh, and, and as you say, the, the site, the entire space should grow from it. The fundamentals are still there, aren't they? So the fundamentals of large amounts of money coming in as venture capital, constant exponential growth of user base has come in. Um, and we've seen that grow. And that's, of course, what we, as Mark was saying earlier on, look 12 to 18 months in advance. And everything we see 12 to 18 months in advance is very positive to this. It seems to me that this is a process that's, teached, that's taught us that um, the protocols have to be well understood. Um, some of these early codes um, you know, will fail and lessons will be learned from it. Um, but the space is rapidly growing. And in fact, as you said earlier on, being positive about this, this is an extraordinary good lesson for mm. us to learn as a community. And, uh, and, and it's been very good for us to learn as fund managers, because um, in the case of the Portal Digital Fund, you know, it will be down, but robustly lower than, than anything else that um, has been impacted, because you should plan in this space unless you want to be a long-only speculator to make sure that you vest it in such a way that you can expect uh, and survive these downside volatilities. Um, so we're going to get this out to all the listeners, um, both on our database, but also the uh, Beyond Bitcoin listeners um, as a special edition. And I'd like just to hand it over to both of you to have a sort of a final brief say on where you think we're up to in this space, and then we'll put it out. After you, Nathan. Thank you. No, no, I, I think, again, I've, I've spent a lot of time understanding this and I am approaching this industry with a sense of humility, uh, both in terms of looking into spending a lot of, so it's, to me, it's a lot of labor looking into token economic system. And, and as we aspire in building a better model for us is looking into, again, our research process looks into some of the metrics which distills down these tokens and then look into some of the qualitative elements. And this to me is a qualitative element. Mm. We look into the founders, we look into the true decentralization, what are the risks associated with it, both the market risk, the credit risks, but also protocol risks and factoring that as a part of analysis. And I, I'll, I, I think I'll stick to that process as, as laborious as, as it may sound, but no shortcuts there. So that's that to me is a lesson learned here. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I think if you, if you have a process and you have a sort of matrix and a framework that you measure some of these things against them, even if they look really attractive, it just you realize there's there's some red flags there that need to be addressed. I mean, at the very least, you know, you need to size the positions accordingly. You know, if something's really high risk, it shouldn't be more than a two or three percent position. Because yes, the returns could be spectacular, but it's binary. You can also go to zero as it did. I think you know risk. You know risk is, as they say, commensurate with with gain. You know you can't achieve returns without taking a bit of risk. And the saying that I've always liked, I'm not sure who who came up with it, but it's that risk varies inversely with knowledge. You know, the more you know, the less risky something is. You know, I always joke around that if I were to perform open heart surgery, I guarantee you every patient would die. Right. So it's like you know, we need to understand, and I think that's what, you know, you, you bring to the table in understanding the tech and understanding how the protocols work and really being able to dissect, you know, because just the last thing I'd say on this is these people that are developing it, um, whether it's Doquan and others, 
they have vast amounts of resources at their fingertips. You know, is it not you know outside of the realm of of, of common sense to approach some sort of risk management consultancy and say these are the holes, this is what we think could be a problem. How do we start fixing these things over here? And as a community, you know, as you say, that that group think comes together and, and can act for good or for bad. You know, if they come together to help solve a problem, you'll always get a much better result than, than someone trying to figure it out on their own. But at the same time, you know, once there's blood in the water, you know, everyone, everyone heads for the everyone heads for the door at the same time. And there's no more, there's no more rationality in, in, in terms of figuring it out. And that's what you want to guard your portfolio against is to ensure that you know you're not overly exposed to one thing that the um, the tail begins to wag the dog. Yep, very true. Well, somewhere between ignorant exuberance um, and and downside panic um, should be where the steady investor is investing in this space. It represents a part of portfolio, possibly, if this is your interest, um, and it's measured whether it's measured through us as looking at the technology or looking at our exposure, or it's measured through you guys as investors um, that might be turning around and saying, I don't want this in a portfolio or I want a small percentage in the portfolio. Consideration has to be given to it. This is not a gambling casino, um, as much as it's exciting to have that discussion around a cocktail party. Um, so next week, uh, Beyond Bitcoin will be back at its normal time, which is on Thursday morning. It's released um, in, in, uh, in Australia, and that's Wednesday night in America. Um, and we'll be back to our standard uh, discussions along the way because our solid belief is that this space continues to grow, the community continues to grow, and the fascination in the technology continues to grow. Um, from this today... Um, let's plan our, our path going forward. Let's realize a mistake is made and let's see whether the community is going to build from that and, uh, and, and create better stable coins as they're so core to what we do in this realm of uh, tokenomics. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Mark, and giving us an introduction or view of, of how you see the space occurring and, and its alliance with macroeconomics. And uh, as always, Nitin, fantastic to to have your insight you. into things. It's a joy indeed. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Bye Mr. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Ciao. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please feel free to connect with either Nitin or myself on nitin at portal.am or Derek at portal.am. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well inquisitive and engaged. See you next week. Bye for now.